Good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this Sunday morning. Welcome home, family. <clears throat> you have to excuse me. My body's been trying to get sick on me all week. <clears throat> and I said, not today. It's going around, so I hope everyone's healthy. <clears throat> we are continuing our trek through the Gospel of John, and we are in the second half of John chapter 20. And what an appropriate um, song to sing right before this message, uh, that he speaks through his word, that he shows us the truth, that he makes it clear to our minds and our hearts about who he is and about who Jesus is and the mission he sends us on to spread and proclaim his truth. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are and how you love us. Lord, we praise your holy name for you are good, you are mighty, you are perfect. Lord, we love you, we seek you. And we pray for this time as we open up your word, as we seek to know you through the word that you've given us, that we can stay true to it, that you can bring it to alive in our minds and our hearts, that you can Show us what we need to be shown. Teach us what we need to be taught. Lead us where we need to go. And that you bring Jesus alive in our minds and our hearts so that we can follow him all of our days. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your light, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> George Whitfield is one of my heroes of the faith. So much so, yeah, you probably have heard me mention him before, but if you don't remember, I'm going to mention him again because this guy was a rock star. He is known as probably the best preacher and evangelist of the 1700s. He was born in Britain, but he made the trek to um, the American colonies and back 13 times. And you go, why 13 times? That's an odd number because he ended up dying in the colonies because he spent his whole life and energy poured out and proclaiming the word. He ministered for about 34 years, and in those 34 years, he preached 18,000 sermons. Do the math there. That's roughly 530 sermons a year. He preached to thousands upon thousands of people who came to hear him before microphones were even invented. It's estimated that 80% of the American colonies heard him preach. He was the man. He was a man because he was caught up by this call that God gave him to preach the word. He even said, the whole world is now my parish Wheresoever my master calls me, I'm ready to go and preach the everlasting gospel. But this was not always the case. George Whitfield did not, was not born and all of a sudden said, hey, let's start preaching the gospel. He actually struggled with the fact that he could not find peace with God. He struggled for a long time. His whole childhood could be characterized that he knew something was off with his life. He knew that he did not have peace with his creator, that he was not worthy of even associating with God. He could not find peace. And he struggled to find it. So much so that he would try to do a lot of stuff. He would pray and fast three times a day and just really kind of uh, 
uh, pour himself into all these things to try to find this peace, even good things. But he couldn't find peace for his troubled soul. And so many of us have experienced that because we all want peace. We all want a peace in our life, a sense that we're right with what we're doing. But ever since Adam and Eve in that garden took that fateful bite, we can't have peace on our own. For all of humanity has been broken and shattered, and we don't have that relationship with God anymore. We can't have that relationship with God anymore. And actually, we don't even want that relationship with God anymore. We're broken in sin, and that is where we stand on our own. And so we try to find peace in other things. We try to find peace in how smart we are or how well we can achieve or how big our bank account is or our position at a job. We try to find peace in all these things that don't give us peace. And we're looking for this. We're trying to be enough, but the question always will haunt us, how enough is enough? We don't find peace. We could be like George Whitfield who existed in this state of struggling with this trouble of where does he find peace. And he, he struggled until someone shared the gospel with him. Someone made it clear it's not about what you do that you can find peace in, but it's about what Christ has done. That the only lasting peace we can have in this life and a peace that actually transcends this life and carries over into eternity is a peace of being right with our God through Jesus Christ and the, the, the salvation he achieves for us on the cross and in his resurrection. Jesus, uh, George Whiffle grabbed on that peace and he would never be the same again. He found peace with God and he started preaching and proclaiming that truth. Because once that peace grabs a hold of you, you cannot keep it to yourself. It must be shared. It must be proclaimed. Because if we truly understand the peace that we have in Christ, we want other people who we see are tired and weary in this world to experience that and know it. Peace is a powerful thing. And that's what we see in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. So you have your Bibles? You can turn to John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. If not, it's going to be on the screen. This is again, after the resurrection, uh, Jesus is appearing to his disciples, his, his followers, and making it known to them that he has risen from the grave. And so it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness of any kind, of any is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the mark of 
of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You have believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many thing, many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. <coughs> when we read this, we see the, the fact that peace changes everything. I was summing up like this. Peace sends us to increase. The fact that Jesus shows up and the first thing he says to his disciples is peace be with you is significant. He's making it known to them that their foundational understanding of where they stand with God has been changed because of him. That he has provided salvation and that this peace that he gives to them leads them, pulls them, sends them to share and proclaim his gospel. Peace changes everything. Peace sends us to increase. So we start with that foundational statement that Jesus says. He shows up. He does again one of his weird things we can't explain. He out there in a locked room. They're kind of scared of the Jews, the leaders. They don't know what's going to happen. They're saying to themselves, they killed our Messiah. Maybe they're going to kill us next. And all of a sudden, in this locked room, there's Jesus. Kind of freaks them out. And so he says, peace be to you. Peace be unto you. He says, peace be with you. And he says it two times to them. And when he reappears to Thomas, he says it again. And there's got to be some significance here. This greeting actually was a common Jewish greeting that they would do. And still is today that people, when they greet each other, they would say, peace be with you. It would be shalom aleichem. It's a common saying within the Jewish population. But yeah, it's interesting, it's never recorded that Jesus would say this common saying until now. There's significance here because he is stating this peace is now given. When you think back on what Jesus has said in the past, we see that it's actually a, a, a fulfillment of his promises to his disciples, that he was going to bring peace to them. Back in John 14, 27, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And in John 16, 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. He had been promising this peace, and now he comes and he says, ah, here it is. You have it. You can experience it. You can trust it. You can believe it. You have this peace. Why? Because this peace statement that Jesus makes is a compliment to a statement he made on the cross when he said, it is finished because jesus on the cross said it was finished what was finished the salvation achieved on that cross is finished everything needed for us to have a relationship with god everything needed for us to be with our creator was accomplished on that cross and he says it is finished sin no longer bars us from loving and being accepted by god 
And now the follow-up statement, because he can say that, because he can say it's finished, he can say, peace be with you. That you now have peace with your God. Before, all of humanity was at war with God. But now we can have peace through Christ. We can have peace because Jesus achieved it for us and now gives it to us. Which means we all can stop running after finding, seeking peace in those other things in our life. That we can go from the frantic pace of this world and achievement to rest in Christ. That he gives us that peace with God. And when he gives us that peace with God and we know it and experience it, our reaction is someone, everyone needs to know it. Which is why it immediately leads to him saying, just as God sent me, so now I send you. That we, this peace leads to increasing by sending. It's a great commission in the Gospel of John. All the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a statement when Jesus talks to his disciples and says, hey, I'm sending you on a mission. And this mission is that you proclaim the truth of who I am. And so this is John's version of it. That just as I was sent by God, so now I send you. And we know that this account is not just for the disciples there, but it extends to any believer who reads this and knows that just as Jesus was sent, now we are sent by God and by Christ to proclaim that message of truth. The disciples were called to carry on Jesus' mission. They were called to carry on what Jesus had started. But Jesus had already done everything we need for salvation. He achieved it all. It's not about us doing anything else. So what was this mission they're supposed to carry on? What's the one thing left that needed to be done? People needed to hear about it. People needed to know it happened. People needed to hear this truth so they could believe in who Jesus was. And so the disciples were sent out to proclaim this message of salvation achieved in Christ. That when Jesus showed up on the scene, what was his first message? Repent and believe. And when disciples went out, what was their message in an eggshell? Eggshell? Nutshell? Nutshell? <laughs> Repent and believe. That was the message they carried throughout to the, the ends of the earth as they knew it. Repent and believe. That we increase by, by being sent out and proclaiming that gospel message. And if we are convicted and convinced that that is not just for disciples, but for every believer in Jesus Christ, that means we need to know the message. That we know the truth of who Jesus is and how he died for us and how he saved us. That we need to know that. And why do we need to know that? Not just for our own benefit, but we need to know it so that we can go out and share it and proclaim it and preach it. And speak the truth into our friends' lives who are hurting and not experiencing that peace. We can say, I know where you can find it. I know where you can rest. And it's not on your own efforts or your achievements, but it's on Christ and Christ alone. So they went. And why did they went? Why did they went? Why did they go? I blame the, the head cold. 
is because they saw with their own eyes. They were eyewitnesses. Look at the account again, and you see that they were in the locked room. Jesus shows up, and he says, peace be with you. And then what does he do without being prompted? He says, check it out, guys. See the nail holes? Check my side. That's where the spirit went home. He showed them the truth. I am your Lord, risen again. This is the historical reality of our faith, that people saw this happen. People saw him walking around. It's how the early church started, that the eyewitnesses wrote it down and shared it, and they expressed it to people around them and said, this truly happened. This is why Paul, when he's writing 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 15, when he's talking about the gospel, the things of first most importance, he grounds it in the fact that all these people saw Jesus. They were witnesses to it. People could go back and ask them, what did you see? It's a historical reality that Jesus showed up again. <clears throat> they saw it and they believed. So much so that when Thomas shows up, he's like, hey, I missed a party. Have you guys ever missed a party? Like you hear all your friends do something fantastic, and then you show up again and they're like, man, you should have been there last night. It was lit in the best possible way. And you're like, man, I missed the party. I missed it. And so he makes this statement, you know, unless I, unless I see the exact same thing, I will not believe. Because he missed it. And we give him a hard time. It becomes a phrase in our culture, the doubting Thomas. And we say, man, that, that Thomas doubted. He just wanted to see what his friends saw. So much so, Jesus shows back up again, says the exact same thing, peace be with you. And he says, hey, Thomas, check it out. Here are my nails, scars. And here are the, the side, the wound, where the spear went home. And so we give him our time, but I don't think he's, he, he, you should give him that much hard time. He just wanted to experience what his friends did. But we call him Doubting Thomas. But whatever, however way you take Thomas, he makes this profession of faith and as we see the disciples believed after seeing and the point driven by this thing is that our faith is based on this. The disciples saw Jesus risen again and they believed. He gave them peace and it changed everything about it. So much so that they went out and they changed the world through starting the church and empowered by the Spirit. But it also leaves us going, what about us? We're not in that category. We are not eyewitnesses to Jesus being resurrected. We're left, to, so we're like, what about us? If, if they saw and believed, what about us? Can we believe? Can we be affirmed in our own belief? Yeah, we, we see and we experience the truth of how God operates in our life. And, and we have those experiences nowadays of how he has saved us. But that's not the basis of our faith. And I think that's really, really clear in this text why Jesus immediately takes it from Thomas and says, you saw and believed, but blessed are those who do not see and yet will believe. 
Because he's making it clear. He says, hey, you saw and believed, and that's great, and that's foundational, and that's how the early church is going to start. But for everyone who comes after, everyone who hears your word and believes, everyone who reads your words written down in the book of the Bible and believe, blessed are they. And he's making the statement that they are accepted by God on the same basis as those who saw with their own eyes. That's not two classes of Christians that some believe because they were eyewitnesses, and now us who didn't see are some second class. No, we are just as accepted as disciples because we believed what they wrote and what they testified to. It means that we can read and we can say our faith is, is, is grounded on that historical reality that they testified, but it's restored, is, is grounded on the word and this fact that Jesus rose and we can believe that we're accepted just like they were. Which means we probably should honor their accounts and know it and read it and believe it and let that shore up our faith that when we're doubting or when we're struggling, that we don't look to our own experiences or our own feelings because those are fickle, but we rather look to his word and their accounts and be built up by looking to him. That our faith is informed by the word that now sends us. Which is why this section ends, I believe, with John recording the purpose of the book. Because he knows as he's pinning this down to the parchment or the papyrus or whatever he's pinning this down to, he knows this question people are going to be asking, what about us? And he says, this is why I have written this account. So that you, my brothers and sisters, you little children can take it up or someone can read it out to you and you too can believe. And you too can have peace with God. And you too can be changed because of it. That we can rest assured that our faith is grounded in this truth and the purpose in which he wrote. That we can know that he is that Jesus rose again and that he saves us. But knowing this truth, being called to go, doesn't work unless we're empowered by the Spirit. For on our own, we were fell. We can't even live and do our own life well enough on our own. And we, so how could we share the truth on our own? And so that is why we see Jesus now showing up and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit, this promise that he is a fulfillment of John 16 when he promised that he would send this Spirit to us, he's now saying you have it. It's indwelling in you. It's going to empower you. It's how you can share the truth in love and how people can respond. So he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, when we read this in the Gospel of John, we got to go say, wait a minute. I know my Bible. And I know the Spirit doesn't get poured out on disciples until Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And that's a unique event 40 days after. And so now, how is it now in John that Jesus can say, receive the Spirit. Is, is John confused here? Does John know, not know what he's talking about? Are there two different kind of outpourings of the Holy Spirit? These are the questions Bible nerds ask each other as they get around and look at the Gospels. But what we see here is probably a, a symbolic fulfillment anticipating this full endowment of the Spirit that the church, the church that John is writing to, which is, includes us, has already experienced. 
And so he's not going to count that. He's kind of just summing up and says, maybe this is an enacted kind of parable of Jesus saying, this is about to happen. That when I ascend to the Father, and when the Holy Spirit descends upon you, some crazy stuff is about to happen. You're going to be empowered for ministry because what do we see happening when the Spirit descends on Pentecost? They get out and they start preaching and proclaiming the truth of who God is. And so Jesus is saying, now I'm sending you, and so trust that as I'm sending you, you will be empowered by the Spirit, that you will be able to proclaim the truth of who I am and how I save. And so Jesus is making this claim, which is that, that he, we are now gifted, empowered, to share the gospel and it to hit home in people's hearts and minds that they can know the truth. And that's why it immediately goes after saying this, receive the Holy Spirit, it goes into maybe a confusing statement for a lot of people when it talks about, hey, what you forgive is forgiven and what you don't forgive is not forgiven. And we're like, wow, that sounds pretty harsh. But when you look at it, it's really the, just the outworkings of what happens when we start preaching the gospel. We preach forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and those who respond receive forgiveness and we get peace. But those who don't respond stay in their sin and will not experience forgiveness. And so it's just saying, when we start preaching the word, forgiveness is dealt out to those who respond and those who don't, don't have forgiveness and will not have that peace, which is why we go out why we should have a passion, because everyone needs to hear this truth. What is the truth? It's that confession of faith that Thomas made after Jesus showed up. He says, don't disbelieve, but believe. What does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. Some people <laughs> take this and say, oh, he's just kind of surprised. And he's kind of saying, oh my God, or something like that. No. This is a statement of, G of Thomas looking at Jesus and he sees who he is and he's proclaiming, my, my Lord and my God, he has seen the risen Christ and he is changed forever. He's not taking the Lord's name in vain. He's describing the second person of Trinity, the God-man in the flesh in his glorified body pretty accurately and correctly as he says, my Lord, my Master, my Discipler, the One, my Messiah, my Lord and my God. You are God in the flesh. He believed. And because he believed, this statement of sending applied to him and he went. That he shared the faith, that he helped start the early church. We see this confession of faith, and we have to ask ourselves do I believe? Do you believe? Can you make that same profession that Thomas made, my Lord and my God, and can we accept that peace that we have in Christ? Do we believe that he sends us? Are we changed forever because we see this truth? If we are, then the fact remains you are sent. Just as Jesus spoke into the life of the disciples and said, just as Jesus is sending me, sent me, now I am sending you. He's speaking that truth to all Christians that if we believe, we are sent. You are sent. This mission is for you. 
This mission is yours. This mission that's based on the eyewitness is informed by the Word and is empowered by the Holy Spirit and is grounded on that confession of faith. That's all true for you and you are now sent to share and proclaim and preach this same message to everyone around you. So what needs to happen if that's true that we are sent? Well, we need to get the vision. Get the vision. Get the passion. Get the conviction. That you are sent. If you look at polls, they they claim that about 65% of Americans are Christians, or claim to be Christians. And you can break that down further if you want to get into that. So if you look at just Sebastian County, our mission field, right here, right where we are, and you think about 65% of these people are Christians, and we go, wow, that's pretty, we want that to increase. What would be a manageable goal? Let's increase the numbers of Christians here. Now I'm speaking as a human. I know it's the power of God and through the Holy Spirit that's going to do that. But he's using us, empowering us, and sending us out there. And so we get the vision. Let's say, let's raise that percentage to 66%. One percentage. Can we do that? Well, when you look at Sebastian County, population of 128,000 people, one percent is 1,281 people. That seems daunting, doesn't it? Maybe you're like, well, we can't do that. Well, that's right. We can't do that if we think that sharing the gospel or proclaiming the news is inviting someone to church only, or just the pastor does that, or you know those missionaries, they will do that. No, but if we catch the vision and say, no, every single Christian of a gospel-believing church would share the truth with people who need to hear the truth of who Jesus is, it becomes much more manageable. Becomes even probable that Jesus empowers this mission and says, go. But we don't do it on our own, and so we have to get the vision, but then we need to fall to our knees and be in prayer for that vision. For we can't change people's not minds. We can't convince them and argue them into the kingdom. We can't be smart enough or winsome enough to, to reach into a cold, stone, dead heart and make it alive for Christ. And so we get down on our knees and we pray. We pray for God to be moving in everyone's life that we know. We pray for opportunities, even if they're scary, to share and proclaim the news of Jesus Christ. And we pray that people could respond. We pray that people could be open to hear and be changed. And if we believe we're sent and we catch that vision and we're on our knees praying, then we actually do our part and we train for this. If we care about stuff, we usually train for it, don't we? We spend some time thinking about stuff. And so if we care about sharing the gospel, shouldn't we think about how we can share the gospel? Practice it. Learn not only what I believe, but why I believe it? And how can I start those conversations and look for those resources that can help me on that track? We train for that. But that will just be training unless we do. That if we catch the vision and we're praying and we're training, then we Nike it and we just do it. That you get out there and say, I am sent. I believe this is the truth. 
that I know it's not my words that's going to convince anyone, but it's the Spirit that's going to be moving through my words if they respond. That I'm just a humble tool and that God can use me even if I miss speak, if I stumble, if I falter, that God can even use the weakest of tools for His kingdom to grow and the gospel be shared. And we apply ourselves and say, yeah, God can use the weakest tool, but He's probably going to use me if I can sharpen this blade a little bit and know how to speak the truth. And then we get out and we do it. That we see this truth that Jesus has risen again and it changes us. And so we go because peace sends us to increase. The peace we have with God, it sends us out to increase the church, increase the believers, increase people who call upon the name of God through Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. And so I just challenge you with this last thought. I'm stealing from another church that does it well. And that's just to ask the simple question. Who's your one? What I mean by that is when we look at the numbers, if we look at, we look at our lives, we probably interact with a lot of people who need to hear the gospel and it can seem daunting. Maybe we don't know where to start. Well, it starts simply with one. That we start praying targeted. God, show me the one. Show me the one. Or maybe you already have that one in your mind. And we pray and we say, God, open up opportunities for me to share the truth with that one. Let me be that the gospel ambassador with that one. Who is your one? I, and I challenge you this very week, right now, think in your mind or pray in your mind and ask God to show you that one. If we believe we are sent by God, if we believe the truth, this truth determines whether someone's going to be with God for eternity or in hell separated from one, if we believe that, shouldn't we pray and say, show me at least one person, one person that you can use me to share the gospel with? One person that maybe if I was not thinking through this, I would just walk by. But one person, maybe in my life, and maybe I already have a burden for them, and I've been praying for them, but show me that person and make opportunities open so that I can share the truth. For if we know the fact that peace with God through Jesus Christ changes everything, we want that person to have that peace. And the only way they can is if they hear and believe the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is. So who is your one? Think of them. Pray for them. And then share with them. With love, as winsome as you can be, we share the truth of who Jesus is and let God do the work. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We seek you. We ask that you continue to work in our lives in big and grand ways. And in those small ways as you train us up to share and proclaim your good news. Lord, we look at this account of these disciples being changed by you being risen. And we know that that same fact has happened to us if we believe. That if we are believers in Christ, we have been changed. If we're believers in Christ, it's because we have peace now through Christ with you. And so, Lord, we pray for all of us. 
Give us the courage. Empower us. Let us rely on you as we go to share the truth. Let us see the importance. Let's be moved with compassion and courage and conviction. Lord, we love you. We seek you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.